Well, friends, praise God for this king who rules with righteousness and justice. And that's what we want to do now in fixing our eyes on him. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open up with me to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And I encourage you to open your Bibles with us because whenever we go into God's word like this, we don't want you to just take our word for it. We want to put our eyes and our hearts on what God is saying to us in his word and to be careful listeners to his, what he's saying to us. And so if you're looking at Isaiah, wondering where that's at, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the middle of your Bible. So you have Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, that's where we're at. Isaiah chapter 61. When I was in seminary in Chicago, my friend had an intramural basketball team that they were putting together, and they needed some help. And I played basketball in high school, and so they asked me to join their intramural basketball team. Now, I have to admit, it had been a while since I actually played competitively, and so I had to kind of get the rust off of my game. I worked hard, and I got my game up to speed. And as the season went on, uh, I was having fun playing basketball again. And I was holding my own in the court, if I must say so myself. So when the coach in the middle of the season came to me and pulled me aside, I wasn't sure if he wanted to thank me for joining the team and helping or if he had drawn up some new plays that were designed to get me the ball a little bit more. I wasn't sure what he was coming to me for, but that's not what happened. When we sat down, he said to me, you know, it would help if you just didn't shoot the basketball anymore. (laughs) I expected praise, and instead I got benched that afternoon. And as Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12 says, hope deferred, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Expectations matter, don't they? 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a man. It was a miracle. And through an angel, God the Father announced the arrival of his Son in the flesh this way. He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news. Great joy. That's significant, isn't it? Because life stinks a lot of the time. We carry around disappointment. We carry around often for years hurt and pain and sorrow. I mean, if we could somehow go online and give a review of 2020, most of us would give it a thumbs down, right? So what do we do with life's disappointments that leave our heart feeling sick? Well, we can try to escape, run to alcohol or ice cream or amusements like television or social media or video games. 
Or we can just become bitter and angry, cynical. Or we can make the choice to go deep with God. We all have ideas of what would, of what would make us happy, right? I would be happy if you fill in the blank. We have ideas in our own minds and our own hearts, even sometimes that we're unaware of, of things that would give us great joy. And so we assume with this news of Jesus' arrival that, 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 that he came to make me comfortable or popular or successful or rich or healthy or whatever it else is that we define in our minds is necessary to be happy, to have great joy. But friends, like I experienced on the basketball court long ago, Wrong expectations for why Jesus came can leave us disappointed and actually rob us of our joy. So rather than expecting God to conform to our expectations, we as followers of Jesus need to adapt our lives to his plan. So what we want to do is this Advent season over December, we want to look at four different texts in God's word. Isaiah 61, that's today. Next week we'll look at Hebrews 2, then Mark 10, and then Luke 19. These four passages of scriptures that actually explicitly tell us why Jesus came. Why did he come? Those texts will tell us. Knowing why Jesus came helps us to trust God and to adjust our lives so that we can receive the good news and great joy that was announced to us 2,000 years ago. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word in the Old Testament book of Isaiah 61, and we're going to look at the first three verses this morning. So let me read to us the first three verses of Isaiah 61. This is what the prophet says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Praise God for his word to us this morning. All right, church, why can we trust God when we're in trouble? That's the question we want to look at this morning. I think that Isaiah answers for us this morning. Why can we trust Jesus when we're in trouble? Number one, because Christ came to heal the brokenhearted. If you're taking notes, that's the first point this morning. Christ came to heal the brokenhearted. And we're going to see that in verse 1 of our text. Now, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and up till now I've assumed that this text refers to Jesus. 
even though Isaiah was a prophet who served the people of God 700 years before Jesus came. But we know that it's referring to Jesus because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus travels to the, the city that he grew up in, Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. He asks for a scroll, and he reads Isaiah 61. He reads this verse to the people in the synagogue. And then when he sits down, all eyes in the synagogue are fixed upon Jesus. What's he going to say? And he says to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, and then he applies that text to him. He's saying, this is about me. Notice how verse 1 begins. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. So you have that image of anointing the king with oil. Now, when we refer to Jesus Christ, just a simple reminder, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Christ means the anointed one. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament term Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one, the the Savior King. And this has been long anticipated all throughout Scripture. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God comes with the announcement of good news in Genesis 3.15. He tells them that one day from a descendant of Eve, God himself would raise up a savior king who would crush the head of Satan. And he would make all things new that have been broken because of sin. And so every generation after Adam and Eve were looking for this descendant of Eve who would lift the curse of sin on this world. Generations would come and generations would go. Everyone was waiting for this Savior. And then Jesus came. And in Matthew 3, when he was baptized, we see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus. It was God declaring to the world, this is my son. This is the Christ. This is the one that you've been waiting for. He's it. He is the anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He will crush the head of Satan. He will make all things new. He will lift the curse from this sin-sick world. Praise God. That's quite the task, though, isn't it? How in the world is Jesus going to do this? Well, Isaiah says he will do it by preaching. (laughs) He says in verse 1, the Lord has anointed me. That's Jesus. He refers us to himself. The Lord has anointed me. Why? To bring good news. To preach good news to the poor. And so in a world that's broken and filled with disappointment and groaning because of the, the consequences of sin... Jesus comes and he preaches a sermon of good news, of gospel. But who is Jesus talking to? Who is in in the congregation that Jesus is addressing? Well, the text says he preaches good news to the poor. Some translations will say he preaches good news to the afflicted. You can see that in your footnote in the ESV. 
So the poor are not just those who are financially broke. It includes that, but it's a lot bigger of a term. The poor is anyone who's in trouble. You in trouble? Then that's, that's who he's talking to. The poor is anyone who's in trouble for any reason, including if you're in trouble because of your own sinful failure. Jesus comes preaching good news to those people. One Old Testament scholar, John Oswald, put it this way. He said, the poor are those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart left to try. Friends, does that describe you this morning? Has this world beaten you down so badly that you have no more heart left to try? I've talked with many of you over these past eight months about the loss and frustration and heartache and grief that you're facing. I know many of us in our church family know what it feels like to be broken down by this sin-sick world. You know something of the poverty that Jesus is talking about. But friends, listen. Jesus came with good news, not for the self-reliant, not, not for those who have their life together and they're good. Jesus came with good news for the poor, for those who are in trouble, for those who are in over their head. Those who assume that they can stand in themselves, those who assume that they can stand in their own righteousness, well, they have nothing to hear from God. This is what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 2. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And he's not just talking about COVID. He says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Just like a sick person knows they need a doctor, those who know they're in trouble, those who know they are sinners, are the ones who go to the physician And so knowing that you're poor this morning, feeling in over your head is not all that bad. It stinks, it's hard, it's painful, but it it has good results. Over the last 10 months, I have often felt weak, weary, unsteady, unsure, desperate. And I gotta admit, my flesh chafes against feeling weak. I hate it. Being poor stinks. In fact, the world's assessment of the poor is that they're cursed. But Jesus taught something different in the world. Jesus said, blessed is the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the contrite. Blessed are those who know they're in trouble. (laughs) Why? How can something so painful be actually good for us? Because it's those who know they're in trouble who come to the good physician. And friends, listen, when Jesus is your physician, it doesn't matter how bad things are. It doesn't matter how deep of trouble that you are in. It doesn't matter how hopeless of a situation that you're in. If Jesus is your physician, he is such a good physician that no matter what you're facing, he always has good news. 
There is no situation you can bring to Jesus as the good physician. He's like, well, I, uh, this is beyond me. No, he'll never say that. If you come to him as your physician, I'm in trouble. He says, I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. I came to preach good news to the poor. Now, listen, the best sermon you will ever hear in all of your life is the sermon that Jesus Christ preaches. There's no better sermon than that. But I don't want us to assume that Jesus' words are just a a sermon that kind of inspires us and then where it's done. Jesus' words are not empty cliches that make us feel good but don't do anything. Like like telling a man who's freezing to death and starving to death, oh, be warm and and well-fed, go in peace but never giving the man a coat or a warm meal. Jesus' words are not like that. Jesus' words are different. God's words have power. When he created the world out of nothing, you know how he did it? Let there be light. And there was light. In other words, God's words have so much power, so much authority. When he speaks, it always happens. Can you do that? Not me. I can say, let there be ice cream. Nothing happens. But when God speaks, it always, always happens. His words are powerful. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. When Jesus preaches, things happen. They're not just empty words. And friends, we got to remember this because when we're hurting and we go to God in prayer and we're desperate and we go to God's word, sometimes we kind of go to it as, this, as if it's a last-ditch effort. Where, you know, it's kind of, we kind of think of it like a fairy tale. It makes us feel good, but doesn't really do anything. That's not true. Because God is faithful, because God's word is living and active and sufficient, we have every reason to be confident that when God speaks, when Jesus preaches, it will happen. So what happens when Jesus preaches good news? We don't have to guess. Look at verse 1. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That is one of the fruits of Jesus' sermons. And here is where we begin to see why Jesus came. It's an explicit statement of why God the Father sent Jesus his son. To bind up the brokenhearted. Friends, who of us has not at one point in our life been brokenhearted? You might be sitting here this morning brokenhearted. Suffering loneliness or grief or discouragement. Being overlooked or betrayed or forgotten. Proverbs 4.23 says that that your heart is the wellspring of your life. And so if your heart is broken, that experience can feel like death. 
But Jesus comes to us as a good shepherd who binds up the injured, who binds up the broken hearts, and strengthens those who are weak. Friends, this is why Jesus came. And so if you are flirting with the idea that God is reluctant to do this, banish that thought from your heart. If you think, oh my goodness, God's rolling his eyes when I come to him again for the thousandth time with a broken heart, banish that thought from your mind. It is not true of God. It's why he came. So when you come to him for the thousandth time in one day with a broken heart, he is pleased. It's why he came. He delights to bind up the broken hearts. So come to him again and again and again. The good news that Jesus preaches is not only for the brokenhearted, though, it's also, he says, for the captives. Verse 1, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are such sweet words. When Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Jesus came, a Jew who was listening to Isaiah would have likely heard him saying and alluding to the fact that when the people of God would fall into sin and God would be faithful to discipline them and send them into exile, God would then eventually bring them back. Though they would be in exile, he would bring them home because God is merciful and he is faithful. That's how a Jew would likely have heard it. They would think of the Babylonian exile that was about to come. But 700 years after Isaiah prophesied this, when Jesus picks it up and he preaches Isaiah 61, he means something even greater than what Isaiah meant. Friends, if you have committed what you think to be the unpardonable sin, if you've blown it big time, and you assume that your life is over now because God must be done with you, then Jesus comes to you today and he preaches good news. He preaches good news to you, if you'll hear it. The good news of forgiveness. This liberty, this freedom from bondage is actually a, an allusion to God's forgiveness of sin. In verse 2, when he talks about the year of the Lord's favor, that's almost certainly a reference to the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25, where every 50th year, every Israelite was to take the entire year off. That's pretty cool. Take the entire year off, and then every debt that is left remaining, you have to cancel it. So that every Israelite could begin the next year with a completely clean slate. That's the year of the Jubilee. That's the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds good, right? Friends, the wages of our sin, Scripture says, is death and hell. That means that the debt that we owe a holy God because of our sin is far greater than any mortgage 
on your house or any car payment that you have to make. It is the debt of our very life. That is the righteous and appropriate and good demand of a good and holy God on our life because of our sin. And it's one that we cannot afford. It's a debt we can't afford. And we, we intuitively understand that if, if a judge in a courtroom uh, knows that the, the person on trial is guilty and they let the person who's guilty go anyway, we would say that that judge is a bad judge. Because a judge's job is to acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. And so the question is, is that if we are guilty, and we are, then how can a God who is holy and a good judge, how in the world can he forgive our debt? How can he forgive our sin? How can he proclaim liberty and still remain a righteous judge? Friends, that's what, that's what the book of Isaiah is about. Isaiah 53, verse 5, puts it this way. Talking about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God forgives and remains righteous because of Jesus. He does not sweep our sin under the carpet and wink his eye. No, 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 no. He bears the weight of sin for us. On the cross, Jesus paid our debt. Instead of crushing us for our sin, Jesus takes our sin and is crushed in our place for our salvation. And what makes Jesus' death unique on the cross was not the, the, the nails in his hands and his feet or the spear in his side, as painful as that was. What made Jesus' death unique was that on the cross, he was suffering God's righteous wrath for our sin, for the sins of anyone who would trust in Christ. On the cross, Isaiah says, he bore our grief our sorrow, our shame, our guilt. He was broken so that we could bind up our broken hearts. He was crushed so that he could set us free. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from condemnation, free from the power of sin over our lives. This is the love of God. 2,000 years ago, many people saw Jesus. They heard him preach, and they, they saw his miracles, and they walked away from Jesus, rejecting him. And they were frustrated with Jesus because he didn't do what they, expe he didn't do what they expected him to do. Jesus didn't fix the political problem that they expected him to fix. He didn't overthrow Rome as they expected him to. And so they just walked away. Friends, in the same way, it's easy for us to look at all the chaos and all the pain and suffering going on around us and to assume that our greatest problems are a broken political system, a health crisis, a strained relationship, our need for a job. And friends, these are hugely important issues and things that God cares deeply about. But Jesus came 
to fix our greatest problem, something that's even bigger and more serious than anything that we can face in this life. Jesus came to save us from God's righteous wrath. To take those who are the enemies of God because of their sin and to make them family and friends of God. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you see why Jesus came and that you hear it this morning as good news. That you see it as his love for you. Because apart from Jesus, the debt of our sin is still ours to pay. But for all who turn from their sin, for all who turn from their self-reliance and trust in Jesus because they recognize their own spiritual poverty, God promises to set you free. God promises to cancel the debt that we owe him of our life. So friends, trust in Christ. Look to him. Give him your whole and entire life and put it in his hands this morning. If you have questions about that, let me encourage you to talk to me or any of the, the members of our church afterwards. We would love to talk with you about any of the questions you have about what it means to be reconciled with God. Don't leave here today without knowing for certain how you can be right with God today. Friends, when we're in trouble, we can trust Jesus because he came to heal the brokenhearted. That's why he came. Second, he came to transform our plight. That's the second thing that we see here in the text. He came to transform our plight. And that's, that second point is going to come out in verses 2 and 3. So look again with me at the text beginning at verse 2. He was sent, the prophet says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to, confort, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Notice in verse 3, this phrase, instead of. It's repeated three times. This instead of that. This instead of that. This instead of that. Isaiah's point here is to show that the good news that Jesus preaches brings about a transformation. This instead of that. If you have a fireplace or you burn a fire in a fire pit, it warms you for a while, but when that fire is extinguished, what you're left with is cold gray ashes. And the ashes are a reminder that, that, one, that, 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 that the fire is done. One way that people express grief and sadness and mourning in the Old Testament was to take ashes and to put it on their head. As if to say, the fire of my life that once burned brightly is now dead. I feel like my life has been extinguished. But Isaiah says to those who mourn, Jesus gives a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. To those who thought their life was over and all was like 
it was, it was like nothing but the cold, dead ashes of a, of a fire pit. He says, let's, let's, let's wipe that off. Here's a beautiful crown, a beautiful headdress. The spirit that was crushed by despair becomes the spirit that is decked out with a crown of beauty, fit for a celebration. And they're anointed with the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And they're given garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. I love that last image that he gives us there, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The other place that Isaiah uses the word faint is in Isaiah 42, verse 3. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. So, Mike, I know you're joking about our Advent candle is barely lit, but that's actually a really good illustration, right? Jesus will not snuff out. If, if, if we feel like that candle is barely lit, hanging on by a thread, Jesus' ministry is one that he will not snuff you out. He will help to fan that thing into flame again. That's what, that's what he's doing, this, this work of transformation in, in his people. If you feel like a faint spirit, so burdened that you're on the verge of being snuffed out, Jesus preaches good news to you. He has the power to put a new song in your heart, a song of praise to your God. And, 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 and then the net impact of this transformation that he's talking about is given in the end of verse 3. What's the result of this? This for that, this for that, this for that. Look at the end of verse 3. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. God is at work not only to, to replace certain things, but to make you and I, as his people, oaks of righteousness. An oak tree is an image of stability and of fruitfulness. But then he adds oaks of righteousness for a reason. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, you know that back in chapter 1, verse 30, Isaiah uses the image of an oak tree whose leaves have withered and the tree has shriveled up and is about to be burned because of Israel's sin. He's talking in chapter 1 about the fact that when God's people exalt themselves instead of God, when they try to be strong on their own apart from God, they're like a branch that is cut off from the tree. This is what Jesus talks about in John 15. If you're cut off from the source of life, you're going to wither up and shrivel up and be good for nothing but for firewood. And so Isaiah 1 begins this image of God's people shriveled up, but then by Isaiah 61, he's transformed us into oaks of righteousness, fruitful, stable. Why? Because we've been reconnected with the source of life. Friends, when by faith we trust in Christ, we are united to Christ by faith, and he makes us oaks of righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness put into our account. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes strong, fruitful Christians. Jesus takes our sin, which kills us, and he gives us in exchange his righteousness. He puts in our lives his spirit. That's how the funeral becomes a party. That's how the mourning turns into gladness. That's how despair turns into praise. This is good news. This is great news. Is it not? 
Now, up to now, I have ignored what might feel like the elephant in the room for many of us. All this good news, all this transformation. We hear about the broken hearts being mended. We say amen. And yet sometimes as followers of Jesus, we still feel discouraged. Our hearts still feel broken. We hear about freedom and liberty to the captives and we say amen. No longer a slave to sin. And yet we still wrestle with sin, with guilt, with shame. There are days we feel trapped by sin, even as followers of Jesus. And so instead, if we're honest, instead of feeling, instead of being oaks of righteousness, oaks of righteousness, there are days we feel like bruised reeds. There are days we feel like that flickering candle. And if we're, if we're looking at our experience, our experience then leaves us frustrated. It leaves us even beginning to doubt maybe what Jesus is saying. I mean, if Jesus says, if what Jesus says is true, if this is good news, then why am I still struggling? You ever feel that way? Friends, this is where Jesus' sermon in Luke 4 is so helpful for us. When Jesus picks up Isaiah 61 and he reads it in that synagogue in Nazareth, he reads verse 1, he reads the first part of verse 2, and he applies it to himself. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then he stops. He doesn't read the rest of verse 2. He doesn't read the next phrase, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't read that in the synagogue. Why? Well, Jesus is the one who fulfills all prophecies. In him, all of God's promises are yes and amen. But God does not, Jesus does not fill all of God's prophecies all at once. There's a, there's a, there's a, a progression of fulfillment that Jesus, as Je, that Jesus fulfills these promises. In other words, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came to announce that now is the year of the Lord's favor. He's able to read Isaiah 61, 1 and verse 2, the first part of verse 2, and say, today this is fulfilled, I've come. I've got good news. And he fulfills that immediately. But then when Jesus comes, so Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he's seated at the right hand of God right now, and Jesus has promised that he will come again a second time. And when he comes a second time, it's then that, we'll, that he will sit on his throne and the day of vengeance will be enacted. He will sit on the throne and rule as judge. So how long of a time gap is there between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which we're still waiting for? I don't know. No one knows because God has not told us that. But life between Jesus' first and second coming reminds us that God is not done at work in us. Yes, we are redeemed now. We can say that. But we also wait for our final redemption when Jesus returns. Redemption is a process. It's a process, but it's guaranteed. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6. That's one reason the day of vengeance can bring comfort to those who mourn. Because on that day, God will right every wrong. On that day, he will make all things new. And so we can be confident as we wait. 
but I don't like waiting, and I suppose neither do you. So what do we do while we wait? What do we do when our heart breaks again? What do we do when we fall again into sin's trap? What do we do? Really simply, we come to Jesus. Not a principle, not a trick, not a gimmick. We come to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The text says that Jesus, not a gimmick or a principle, Jesus binds the brokenhearted. Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives. He invites us in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What does coming to Jesus look like then? Well, we read scripture, we pray, we, we, we gather, we, we, we lean on each other. As we pour out our hearts to God in prayer, God hears us and he strengthens us. If we weep before God, he doesn't tell us to suck it up. He stores our tears in a bottle and he weeps with us. Isaiah 42.3 describes Jesus' ministry. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. When we come to Jesus, we come, we come to him by feasting on his word, reading the scriptures day in, day out. And God speaks to us through the Bible. And, and as he speaks to us, it guides our prayers, it confronts our sin, it calms our hearts, and it gives us wisdom as to how to live. And when we're overwhelmed, and, and, and doing these things are difficult, coming to Jesus includes leaning on other friends, other church members. It's scary to let someone in on the depths of our pain, but there is a joy that comes as we share each other's burdens. All right, kids, listen up. This idea of coming to Jesus is not just something for your mom and your dad. This is for you, too. You don't have to wait to be an adult till you can come to Jesus. You can come to him right now. Jesus says that he came to preach good news to the poor. And so kids, the only qualification that Jesus gives in terms of who can come to him are those who realize they're in trouble. Those who are sad, those who are brokenhearted, those who are in need, those who have sinned. If you have a Bible, kids, verse one is a good verse to underline and to come back to over and over again. Because when you're sad and you're heart is broken and you're trapped in your sin, you go back to verse one and you remember, this is why Jesus came. He came to bind up my broken heart. He came to set the captives free. And I'm choosing to go to him right now. Friends, God has stored up abundant goodness for those who fear him, for those who take refuge in him, for those who come to him. So come to Jesus. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3 says that one reason that Jesus delays in his return is to provide time for those who have not yet heard the gospel, to hear the gospel, trust in Christ, and be reconciled to God. That's one of the reasons that Jesus has not come back yet. When Jesus does come back, that will be a day of reckoning. It will be a day of the day of vengeance. 
and the door of God's grace, which now stands wide open, on that day will be shut forever. Today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. So church, what that means for us is that just as Jesus, filled with the Spirit, proclaimed good news to the poor, our job now until Jesus comes back is to join him in proclaiming this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ until Jesus comes back. We proclaim this good news lovingly. We proclaim this good news urgently. Because today is the day of salvation for anyone who would trust in him. That's our task. What is God's purpose in all that he's doing in verses 1 through 3? What's his purpose in this sermon that Jesus preaches? Well, the end of verse 3 tells us his aim, his purpose is that he may be glorified. The chief end of all that God does is to glorify himself. And it's when God is glorified that we are most happy, filled with joy, knowing God's goodness. Some people are religious. They choose to go to church because they assume that being a church-going person will somehow put God in their debt. If I check off all the boxes and do all that I'm supposed to, if I follow the rules, then Somehow in their thinking, God owes them health, wealth, or prosperity. But friends, this is not Christianity. It's idolatry that reduces God to a cosmic butler that is here to do our bidding if we just have enough faith. The prosperity gospel does not glorify God. Choosing to follow Jesus, knowing that following him will involve pain and suffering, that is what glorifies God. Following Jesus will cost us everything. But like the man who sold everything to buy the treasure that was in the field that we see in Matthew 13, those who give up everything to follow Jesus will know that it is worth it. We get the better end of the deal. And so here's the paradox of what Isaiah is saying. It's in our weakness, it's in our weariness, it's in our waiting that we begin to go deeper and deeper and deeper with God. And as we go deeper with God, it's then that we're transformed. A beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that we might be called oaks of righteousness and God may be glorified. So friends, don't be lulled into thinking or believing the lie that we can stand on our own. We can't. On our own, we're weak, but in him, we're strong. On our own, we're poor, but in him, we're made rich. So friends, wherever you are at today, whatever you have done, no matter how hopeless it might seem, Come to him. Come to Jesus. He invites us to come. So come to him. Because he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to give freedom, to give liberty to the captive. Let's pray together.